Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. announcement was issued early this morning by the United States Army Air Corps, European Theater of Operations, and the Air Ministry. United States Army Air Force's Flying Fortresses, B-17s, escorted by Royal Air Force, Dominion, and Allied fighters, made a high-altitude attack upon the railway marshalling yards at Rouen late yesterday afternoon. The attack was successful, all fortresses releasing their entire bomb loads on the target. 
enemy pursuit planes were encountered and one was shot down by a gunner of a flying fortress. Brigadier General Ira C. Eaker, commanding General United States Army Air Force Bomber Command, led the attack in a fortress. Meanwhile, other escorted fortresses were conducting diversional operations. All of the fortresses returned safely. Two escorting fighters are missing. Welcome to the Mighty Eights podcast with me, Johan Tasker, and military historian Mike Peters. Season 1, The Bomb Run. You've just heard the official joint statement by the US and UK governments following the first American-led bombing mission over occupied Europe during World War II. And you join us in the very place those B-17 bombers took to the skies 80 years ago on August 17th, 1942, for that very first mission. We're standing in the middle of what was runway number one, the main runway at Grafton Underwood Airfield in Northamptonshire, eastern England. Those flying fortresses belong to the 97th Bomb Group of the United States 8th Army Air Force, what was to become the greatest air armada in history. And in this podcast series, we'll be telling the story of the Mighty Eighth, discovering with you the people, the planes and the places who sacrificed so much in the fight for freedom. Mike, in many ways, this is hallowed ground, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, this is Station 106, so this is one of the very first airfields given over by the UK government to the US Army Air Force, newly formed as it was. And uh, when uh, Ira Eka and his recce group arrive here in the February of 1942, this is one of the first sites they come to. Um, although it's not really finished and as you know the, the nickname for the place given by the first of the 3,000 Americans who came here was Grafton Under Mud but it does see a procession of the early units of the US Army Air Force arriving in UK via Iceland or however they've got here operating out of here then going somewhere else until it's really fully established but it's quite a thing now to be stood here almost to the hour of the first raid on the spot in the middle of the main runway yeah, it's quite incredible, isn't it? And although the planes have long gone and the runway here has been planted with trees, you don't have to look very far at all to see traces of the Mighty Eighth. And the village, when we came through it, when we drove through it, the village of Grafton Underwood, it's much the same as it was 80 years ago. A handful of thatched limestone cottages. And amid the trees where we are now, about half a mile from the main village, is this stone memorial dedicated to those airmen, those aircrew who flew from here. It's about eight foot tall, a black and pink granite obelisk standing on a plinth by the side of the Geddington Road. And if we look behind the obelisk, we can see a small garden of remembrance with some neatly trimmed bushes and two flagpoles, one American, flying the Stars and Stripes, and one British flying the Union flag. Mike, if we read the words engraved in gold on this monument, they tell us the first and last bombs dropped by the 8th Air Force were from airplanes flying from Grafton Underwood. Although this significant memorial is really to the 384th Heavy Bomb Group, it does mark a significant airfield that stands out in amongst the whole narrative and chronology, chronologic timeline of the 8th Air Force in England. And why Grafton Underwood then? Why would they build an airfield here? 
Well, all of the airfields that are given over initially in 1942 to the US Army Air Force are RAF, they're built for the RAF, and this one was uh, work on it here started in 1941 and was still ongoing in 42. And they're built to bomb Germany, which is great. You think, oh, that's pretty logical. But the pre-war doctrine before Britain started rearming was that France would still be in the fight, Belgium would still be in the fight, and the Netherlands would still be in the fight. So we would be bombing from the east side of England into Germany, uh, not, not bombing into what would become occupied Europe. So that was the logic. And when the when Ica and his guys first get here, it's okay, you can have these airfields, these are available. And it's interesting that when Ira Ica and his recce group start to move around the country, they rapidly realise that the RAF are deeply embedded in Lincolnshire and Bomber County and, and, and Northamptonshire and all this area. And he wants to keep his air traffic away from RAF bomber traffic just for pure air traffic management reasons but also he he wants to extend the range of his aircraft daylight precision bombing depends on reaching into Germany with these mass formations we're going to talk about later so he realizes East Anglia is the place he needs to be so although the first bomber bombing air division is up here and around Northampton and we see those triangles on the shape of the aircraft for them really the centre of mass will become East Anglia but that's not yet we're here in 1942 uh, in the summer of 42 and that's all yet to come so that's why it's it's quite quite moving to be here on, on this day this date to talk about the very first raid and we call it the first raid don't we but there had been raids before this. This was the first American raid, but there had been Americans involved in bombing occupied Europe before this particular day. Explain that. Yeah, you're right, because Ica, he's very, very important at this stage, and he is, he's an Anglophile. He's, he gets on really well with the Brits. He's a very quiet, tactician, Texan, and he's well-mannered, and he understands the British psyche, etc. So he forms a really close, almost symbiotic relationship with Bomber Harris and the, the Brits. Help. And he says the British have given us everything we've asked for, accommodation, fuel, expertise, access to their secret equipment. And uh, so he, part of that process is also getting his airmen, his guys who've never seen combat before and have no concept of fighting the, the Luftwaffe into the air. And one of the things they do is put observers into British bombers with RAF crews to go on raids and experience what it's like and from here at Grafton Underwood and Polebrook that that's activity takes place and it's not big Schweinfurt scale B-17 raids or B-24 raids we're using Boston's and the, and the first raid the first American air crew to fly into occupied airspace don't do it with a white star on their aircraft they do it in RAF Boston light bombers and that happens from here so as, as early as the the 29th of June 1942, um, Captain Charles Kegelman flew on a Boston raid into occupied France uh, with uh, it with 12 RAF Bostons who were bombing Hazelbrook. So he goes and experiences that no incident. He comes back unscathed and thinks, okay, this is okay. And then later we progress to the 4th of July of all days, Independence Day, where the uh, the Americans take off with um, six borrowed Bostons and take place in a raid on Dutch airfields. They lose one. So one goes down in flames, so that's their debut, really. And uh, Kegelman is wounded, and uh, so one, one, one aircraft's missing in action. So that's a welcome to the realities of, of the air war over occupied Europe. Quite literally a baptism by fire, almost. Literally, yeah. It's interesting because that would be, that's a daylight raid. This is the RAF doing light daylight raids still in, in, in 1942, and the fighter sweeps are going on. So the war is, is changing, and the Americans have got this almost 
zealous belief in daylight precision bombing they can't wait to get going and but they need the aircraft to do that and that's going to be initially the b-17 model e's and model f's initially and it'll be f's that fly from here so we're going to talk about the difference in strategies between the RAF and the United States Army Air Force a little bit later on. I mean, it's obviously symbolic that 4th of July raid mm. chosen to be Independence Day. But they were under a lot of pressure to get things off the ground properly and do their own all-American-led mission using their own B-17 planes to show they were capable of doing it themselves and show the folks back home that they could be successful. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and there's a lot of politics because there's, there's internal politics in America between the US Army Air Force and the Army, because until earlier that year, they'd been the Army Air Corps and tightly controlled by the Army. Pearl Harbor does them a favour. It's like, OK, we're going to get into this bombing offensive game and we're going to we need to be separate. We're going to be the Army Air Force and uh, we're going to do this away from the Army although we'll still be technically part of the Army. And they need to prove that it works. They'd, and also externally, Bomber Harris and Churchill have got their eyes on this new Air Force whenever it, is. it hasn't really arrived yet, but they've got their eyes on thinking the Americans are going to produce all these aircraft and we're going to I think if they were to join the night offensive and alongside the RAF, we'll have real, real bombing power and it will take the war to the Germans much faster. And Churchill and particularly Harris and the rest of the RAF portal as well, the head of the Royal Air Force, they don't believe in daylight bombing. The RAF have tried it to, and lost big style over, over, over Germany in daylight. So they say this is futile. This is a waste of resources, a waste of inexperienced air crew. You really should just either help us with bombing submarine pens and chasing submarines out the Atlantic while, while you learn the ropes or just invest in the, in the, the night offensive. So Ica, Doolittle, Spatz, um, Hap Arnold, all these American commanders who are essentially to varying degrees disciples of uh, Billy Mitchell and believe in this have to prove it and they have to prove it soon so they're literally chomping at the bit to get this raid off the ground and to hit hit some German targets in daylight with the B-17 with the Northern Bombsite and say hey we can fight our way across occupied Europe through the air and we can do this this this, this is going to work. So you said that this is this would be the um, the middle of the runway of the main runway from where the planes yeah. took off. There's a steady trickle of uh, cars and people arriving, coming to see what it's all about. And if we look at the war memorial, there's a small wooden cross with the words "We will never forget in remembrance." Rouen, August 17, 1942. Also Schweinfurt and Regensburg, August the 17th, 19. 43. The Schweinfurt and Regensburg missions we'll cover in a future podcast. But for now, Mike, I mean, it must have been quite something for the Americans to come here. Completely different landscape to what they were used to back home. Yeah, we tend to think of young Americans from Detroit or New York. But of course, there were people from the Midwest who were farmers and people like that who, some of them from New England, recognise the terrain or, or team, it feels familiar. But for many, it's just the, the standard of living. You know, they, 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 they get all that indoctrination about how to behave around the British and how to not to brag, not to this, and you know, outside toilets are normal in the UK, this kind of thing. But you know, if you're here and you believe in what you're doing, it's it's a massive adventure. If you're if you're air crew, you've probably flown here, uh, you know, over the Atlantic. If you're uh, if you're ground crew, you've probably come on a, on the Queen Mary or one of the cruise liners and into Scotland or Liverpool and then come down by train and then been picked up by road transport and brought here, usually at night, into the middle of nowhere. And if you're here at uh, Grafton Undermud, as, it was, as they called it, you know, the, the, the runways were too short initially. It had been built for lighter bombers. 
So when it's decided that there will be B17s here, they decide they need to extend the runways. So a Type A runway is, the main runway is 6,000 yards long and the subsidiary runways are 4,500 and 3,000. So, and they form a, a triangular shape, as you know. So we're, we're in the middle of what was the main runway. It's a huge undertaking and it's the UK PLC that foots the bill. The Americans pay a percentage of this, but it's part of the British rearmament process and the design and, and actual construction, which is contracted out, is, is all done by British contractors. Later in the war, American engineers will become involved, certainly around where we've driven up from today from Suffolk. You, you, you'd see a lot, or Norfolk, you'd see a lot of that. Uh, but initially, these, these pre-wartime airfields are a significant investment uh, by the UK and the Americans who arrive at Grafton Underwood these are this is not a pre-war permanent airfield a lot of the accommodation is wooden and canvas wooden frame with canvas covers this is you know even now in August we're, we're feeling the chill a bit with the rain etc and the extremes of weather and we mentioned earlier about the June and July 4th raid you know, these are all postponed due to rainy squalls etc which doesn't bode well when we get later on to talk about bombing where if your whole doctrine is based around clear clear visibility, you know, suddenly you get here and you think, hey, maybe it's not going to be that straightforward. Well, straightforward it certainly wasn't. Everyone from that first Rouen raid returned safely to Grafton Underwood, but that wasn't always the case for the missions that followed. We're going to leave the airfield now and take a short drive to Grafton Underwood Village Church, the Church of St James the Apostle. And when we get there we'll be able to discover some more about the people, the planes and the places of the Mighty Eighth. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We've come to the village church at Grafton Underwood, the Church of St. James the Apostle. It's a Gothic church, more than 700 years old, but there's a very special window here, a stained glass window designed by Brian Thomas in 1977. Mike, what are we looking at? Tell us about the window. This, to me, is a phys physical evidence of this community viewing the presence of the Americans in a positive way and their contribution to the war. And if we look at it, it's three panels, multicoloured, I mean, the obvious centrepiece of it in glass is a, a B-17G, noticeably, because it's got the chin turret. And prominent in the, the right-hand pane is the tail plane of the aircraft with the triangular P for the 384th bomb group. So they were here the longest and they dominate the thinking of it. At the top, though, we can see right at the top in the centre, cross flags, Union flag and the Stars and Stripes, obviously, and then the squadrons 544th, 545th, 46th, 47th. So the, the emblems of the, the four squadrons that made up the 346th bomb group. And then the, the bomb group emblem is below the flags. And then we've got the, the B-17, which is really impressive. And uh, 
it's a silver one it's not the green it's the later later model silver all metal finish it's the g model with the chin to it as i said earlier so that that really epitomizes the later stages of the war when the 384th would have been here doing their business and across that below below the uh, b17 is is a dedication it says this window is dedicated before god in remembrance of those who gave their lives for freedom during world war ii while serving at grafton underwood from 1942 to 1945 especially the members of the 384th bomb group brackets heavy of the united states 8th air force and there is interestingly a christian cross on the left and a jewish star of david on the right and then below that two doves and the phrase coming home so it really does dominate as we walked in we, we noticed there was a the bomb group flag with some unit citations hanging in from the ceiling above us and the prayer cushions have all got american and british military cap badges and emblems on them there's a brass plaque here explaining the uh, the glass glass window of St James's Church. It says dedicated May the twenty first, nineteen eighty three. So that's quite a way after the war, isn't it? Designed by John Mack of Savannah, Georgia, USA. Full scale scale drawing by Brian Thomas, the studio in London, in England. So it's an Anglo US project. And then the windows done by Peter Archer of Kings Langley in England. But the critical thing. Donated by the 384th Bomb Group, United States 8th Air Force, and the dedication is, that's the same dedication as on, on the grass, about the the, the, pla- the window being dedicated to the, the, those who gave their lives at Grafton onwards. It's quite, a, it's quite an impressive thing for such a small church, isn't it? And, and you'd think that with, uh, at its peak, I guess, 3,000 American airmen here in a small community of 100 150 people you'd think that the community would be swamped but what this is telling us is that villagers very much took the americans to their hearts yes and uh, and they'd be here the whole time we, we tend to think about this little village and there are 60 b-17s how how long take us to get here by car three four minutes so there are 60 b-17s and they're not just taking off a raise they're they're testing their engines they're doing training flights they're doing test flights etc there's road traffic coming in and out they're doing resupply bringing in fuel bringing in spares taking guys out to railway stations to go on leave in london or wherever they're going so this would be they'd be omnipresent by day and by night and of course we we read about the partying and, we, and the uh, GI brides and all, but there's more than that. You know, you, so many Americans were not that kind of person and would would have come to church here on a Sunday. So it's such a church orientated society in parts or some of the states of America. That this would this would have been quite busy with Americans coming to the church using the local facilities. They'd have been everywhere, jeeps on the road, etc. So I think when they went, it must have been really strange. It must have been a really eerie silence after they, they'd left the, the, the airfield and gone back to the States. You talk about Jeeps, you talk about the B-17s, flying fortresses, high-tech pieces of equipment for their day. To have 60 of them here in an agricultural community where most people would be farming the land, still using literally horsepower rather than machinery, it must have been quite something a real hive of activity yeah it's interesting you mentioned the farming side of it because so many of the 8th air force and 9th air force veteran accounts talk about guys who've been farmers back in the states and in the downtime that go off and help with the harvest or work on the farms because they they can work that they can work the equipment they understand it and not not the entire american farming industry is not mechanized they've still got horses etc they they understand this and one of those little details we tend to forget is most of these airfields have no fence so they're porous people can walk in and out of them and older guys now who were school children at the time talk about 
yeah, we used to go into the bomb dump. Yeah, we used to walk into the airfield. They'd go and see the guys working on the stands, etc. would be adopted by them. They'd go and get their, their gum and their chocolate, whatever they were doing, or just go and watch the aircraft. But to go back to your original point, this is cutting-edge technology. I mean, the B-17, you know, 1935 to where we are now, 1945, the evolution of that aircraft, those all those machine guns, the engines, the shiny aluminium and chrome all over it. I mean, it was... It would be like something from another world, yeah. And and to see the big white star on it, etc. You know, you, you, they would occasionally see RAF heavy aircraft in daylight doing air tests. But Bomber Command is a is a literally a fly by night organisation, isn't it? So they they you'd hear them go out to the targets and come. Hopefully, all come back. Uh, but the heartbeat of the village would be, I think, in synchronisation with the heartbeat of the station. The it's just so close and so omnipresent. And these airmen. And they would largely be men, late teens, early 20s, certainly the majority of them under 30. Absolutely. And you hear, you read, most of the accounts talk about the oldest man in the crew was 23 and we called him Pops or Grandpa. You know, and the average age for a, a gunner, you know, those who are working on the gunners and the mechanics is 19. Uh, so it's a very young, uh, and it's quite a turnover. We talk about two or 3,000 people on an airfield. But they're not all staying. Some of them aren't coming back. They're even shot down, taken prisoner, whatever, uh, killed, uh, posted elsewhere, moving around. It's quite a fluid, amorphous organisation with people coming and going all of the time. So thousands of miles away from home then, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, from high-ranking officers to regular ground crew, air crew, and not all of them would come back. No, many, many won't. I mean, the the uh, as we'll talk about as we could go through the bomb run series, the the attrition rate is staggering. You know, the, it's higher than the U.S. Marine Corps in the island hopping campaign for the for the Air Force. It's it's uh, it's it's equivalent to the U.S. Infantry. And when you read the Luftwaffe accounts and the U.S. Eighth Air Force accounts of the air battles from forty two to forty five, it's almost got a a great war feel to it of a battle of attrition you know the germans aren't being replaced they're being taken out they're taking down as many bombers as they can the desperate battles up in the cold blue it's almost hollywood style statements we're all going to die just get used to it accept it and you'll be fine you know it, it really is on a par with the great war i mean it's it's a different mentality to bomber command who, who are going out not in a tight formation where they can see each other they're, they're fighting a very different war and their attrition rate is high but these guys are fighting it. They see the enemy. They see it in daylight. And they've got that mission count all the time. Will I get to through the mission? Will I get to the next mission? And I'm getting nearer to going home, whether it's 25, 30 or 35 missions they need to do, depending on where they are in the war. So, um, yes, yeah, so many of them will not come home. I mean, don't physically get back. Some of those bombers that come back in here, the villagers will see them in the circuit. They'll see them firing flares to say they've got wounded on board. They'll, they'll hear the crashes. They'll hear the explosions. Uh, so they will experience the war as spectators of what, what's happening to this bomb group here, that their local bomb group. The Ruan mission, they all came back safe except for a slight injury to a couple of aircrew when a couple of pigeons hit the plexiglass uh, dome at the front of one of the, the B-17 bombers. And if we look at this window at the top, it says, keep the show on the road, bombs dropping from the sky. And at the bottom, where the two doves are, it says coming home. And it's about striking that balance, isn't it, mm. between doing the job and also getting home safely? Yes, it is. And, and um, American bombing doctrine is, is supposedly ethical, 
That's why they're going for precision bombing, because after the Versailles Treaty and the great waste, the carnage of the European war in 1418, we, we won't do that. We, we're going to defend ourselves, defend our coastline with Northern bomb site, precision bombing will hit the right target and we're not going to bomb cities, we're not going to bomb civilians. Ultimately, they'll have to because that's the reality of the Second World War. But uh, it really is phenomenal what they set out to achieve. And it just seems it's, it's like stereotypical American, no fear, we, we can do that. You know, because they, this doctrine that they've got about daylight precision bombing and, and targeting, precision targeting, taking out particular railways or fuel or whatever they're doing, but they're going to they're going to batter their way through with all these with their fortresses and their liberators and in tight formation it's a, it's a very different mentality of and you have to wonder is that because they didn't suffer the way that everybody else did in the great war that they're not averse to casualty loss whereas the the british and the royal air force and the, and the army and the royal navy are you know are definitely in the steel not flesh frame of mind let's not let's risk minimum life and let's not take casualties but and how much of it, as we'll find out as we go through the podcast series, is, is down to hanging on, clinging on to that doctrine and proving it, or, or is it, or is it valid? And, you know, keep the show on the road. Yeah, showing bombs is, is yeah, we'll we'll fight our way through, we'll hit the target, and we'll come back, and, and nobody's going to stop us. But it, and it will be the right target. We're not going to bomb innocent civilians because that's that's counter to our our perception of what war should be like in thirty nine forty five. Let's go back to the airfield then and discuss the strategy behind these uh, bombing raids, behind these missions, and look at uh, why Rouen is such uh, an important mission in World War II. You're listening to the Mighty Eight podcast with me, Johan Tasker, and military historian Mike Peters. We're at Grafton Underwood in Northamptonshire, Eastern England, where the first American-led mission set off to bomb occupied Europe during World War II. That very first all-American mission took place on August 17, 1942, and it targeted the railway marshalling yards at Rouen, northern France, in broad daylight. Now, we've returned to the airfield here at Grafton Underwood, walking along a concrete track to reach the operations room, the ops room, the briefing room. Now, the very first ops room at the airfield here, where the 97th bomb group who flew that mission were briefed before they set off, has long gone. The original building stood next to the airfield watchtower, or the control tower, demolished some years ago. And what we have here, what we're standing in front of, is its 1943 replacement. A flat-roofed brick building typical of the ops rooms on many World War II airfields. And it has to be said, it's in a sorry state. A shell of a building, if you like, covered in graffiti, decaying brickwork, surrounded by weeds, piles of rubble and mounds of earth. But it is, at least, still standing. Mike, the ops room was the nerve centre of the whole operation. And this derelict building still has, very much, a sense of place. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's certainly showing its age and it's been neglected for a long time, but the, the functionality of it is quite clear. It's, you know, the very few windows, the location on the airfield map, it's in that crossover point between the domestic site where people live, eat and sleep and then get into the work site where the, the hard standings are, where the aircraft are, the transition from being in domestic site, going through the briefing cycle, preparing for a mission, climbing onto your aircraft and taking off and off to your target and then coming back and then reverse, coming back through those briefing areas to debrief and tell the intelligence people what you've seen, how you've done against the target, where your bombs went, etc. And these 
these buildings really are the linchpin of all of that planning and that command and control. And um, you know, this would be the building where the teleprinter would start tapping out the, uh, you know, the night before or even very early hours of the morning before a mission and say the target for today is Berlin or Bremen or wherever it was going to be. And this would be the place where the lead navigator, the, the, the ops, op, main operations officer for the bomb group would be and would start to build the plan just to, to tell people what fuel load they need to put on each aircraft, how many aircraft, what crews, what formation, who's going to be where. This is the brain of, of the bomb group. This is before they leave, before they take off. All that choreography, orchestration, whatever you want to call it, it all emanates from here on different phone lines down to the squadrons, out to the flight line, out to the hard standings, the engineers, the caterers, the you know the even the provost, anybody. It, it all comes from here. And this is where the group commander will be with his close-in staff who make the decisions of how the mission will be shaped, how the, how the mission will be flown. The brains of the whole operation then? Clearly, yeah. So it would come down from 8th Air Force headquarters into the bomb group, the warning order, or the executive order as it's called, the field the field order, as you can see, the army roots of the Army Air Force. It's the field, you get the field order, which is the operational instruction for the mission of you know where the target is, when you've got to hit it, what height you're going to bomb at, and all the rest. And then you work back from that how much fuel you need, what type of bombs, when they need to be loaded, and when the aircraft needs to be online and ready to go, when they start their engines. Because you can't be sat out on the runway running your engines for an extra hour. You're burning fuel you're going to need over the target and to get you back. So it's all worked out to the minute, hopefully, in theory. And, of course, the thing we are going to talk about a lot in the whole is the weather. The Met forecast is going to come into here. So that will, that will decide whether it's on or off whether you can see the target because precision daylight bombing is difficult through cloud at the start of the war uh, and it will always be a factor so the weather will be a huge factor in all of this and there were a couple of false starts before they finally got going on the 17th of august let's talk about the difference in strategies then between the british royal air force and the u.s army air force the, the americans high altitude precision bombing in daylight whereas the raf were bombing at night at a lower level and, and less precise less precise heavier bomb loads you know, the lancaster is the main the mainstay of the bomber command with the halifax and the sterling you know they, they were dropping much heavier loads of bombs over a, a, a wide reel Let, let's be let's be honest about that but uh, certainly at the start of the war the germans the German Luftwaffe and the British Royal Air Force are both going to bomb in daylight. Everyone's like, we're going to bomb, we're going to hit the target. And there's some pretty wild claims about how accurate they can be. And then reality, the reality of flying into opposed airspace, the weather, all of these other factors really hit home, particularly for the RAF. You know, the British bombers haven't got the armament that the B-17's got. They're carrying 303 machine guns rather than big heavy 50 calibers. And they're not trained to fly that way, they're not designed to fly in close formation. And in the end, we, we just haven't got the bomb site to do what the Americans intend to do. So it rapidly becomes a matter of survival, maintaining a presence for the RAFs. OK, we can bomb at night, as did the Luftwaffe at the end of the Battle of Britain. They switched to night blitzing because they couldn't survive against fighter command in contested airspace. The Americans come at it from a different perspective. You, some might say a quite naive or simplistic view is, OK, we, are, we must precision bomb. We're going to spend a lot of money on the Northern bomb site so that we can hit the target. You know, the old euphemism about, yeah, you can drop it in a pickle barrel, you know. In a, you, you can do that if you can see the target and you've got this bomb site, which is essentially a mini computer, which can calculate the drift and the bomb angle, etc. for you and set all that up. But they, they say, 
we're going to have to fight our way through there. In order to do that, we're going to we're going to have these combat boxes. We're going to fly in close formation. We're going to have interlocking arcs of fire between all of our aircraft, and we'll have so many machine guns that you know. And a bomb group's got about 500 machine guns in a mass formation. That and they're 50 caliber. They're heavyweight shells. They're not not 303 like the RAF are using. That nobody is going to get near us. We don't need fighter escorts because the B-17 flies so high, so fast, and so well armed. Its bomb load suffers correspondingly. The bomb load of a, a B-17 is equivalent to a light bomber. You've got a heavy bomber with a light bomb load. The Lancaster is a heavy bomber with an even heavier bomb load. It, it, you know, so it's different philosophies about how to go about this. But when Ica, Doolittle and Spatz and Hap Arnold and these people, you know, and I, I wouldn't call them a bomber mafia. I'd say they're, they're believers in what they're doing to varying degrees. I mean, Spatz is quite critical of Billy Mitchell's philosophy along the way, but they all say, we can do this, we can do this in daylight. We have the, we have the, we have the technology to use that phrase. So they arrive here with, with that in mind and um, they're going to maintain that through the war. And there are, don't get me wrong, there are times during the daylight campaign where it becomes, is this tenable and do we turn back? And later on we'll talk about fighter escort and all the difference that that makes but um, there's a dichotomy between the two and certainly when they first arrive in UK in England Harris is saying you really really don't want to do this you're going to lose a lot of aircraft and of course the RAF have tried to fly the fortress with 90 squadron and suffered quite badly but they they helped to identify a lot of the faults of flying at altitude bad weather the icing up of guns and all those other things that saved the 8th Air Force a lot of pain along the way because they, they get all this back brief from the Air Force, Royal Air Force crews who've flown the fortress over Germany in small numbers. They've not really tried to do what the US Army Air Force believe in, this mass formation, these combat boxes. So in '42, everything seems possible. And that first road from here, when they all come back, says, hey, what's the fuss about? You know, Yankee Doodle's gone to town. We've, we've done it because that's what the... The aircraft's called, you know, and Eker's flown on the mission himself and he's very keen to maintain close links with Bomber Command, but he doesn't want to get sucked into night bombing and being subordinate to them. The 8th Air Force is here to do its own thing in its own way. And they wanted to show that that could be done. They had something to prove. And ostensibly, from their point of view, that Ruan mission proved that they could do it. Yeah, I mean, the initial plan, they're quite realistic in their initial thoughts is we need to be battlefield inoculated we need to fly some missions with the RAF you know don't forget the what will become the fighter groups they can't fly the P-39 air Cobra. it's not good enough they've got some P-38 lightnings but they're being equipped with Spitfire Mark 5s and they're flying with the RAF and fighter command are actually controlling the US Army Air Force fighter groups at this point in the war the early start of the war they're, they're taking part in that and the edict is that we will commence daylight bombing operations within the range of RAF fighter command escort that's the start It'll go beyond that very quickly, but at the start, it's okay. Let's build up some flying hours. Let's build up our credibility. Let's learn some lessons. Let's let's get go through the the whole cycle of what fuel to use, what bombs to use, how to fly, how to form it. Because you know, corralling all those aircraft and getting them all together in daylight, it might sound easy in daylight, but this is English daylight with cloud bases and weather changes, etc., and the same over the target. So they've got a lot to learn. They've, they've done a lot of long navigational exercises across the United States and all that kind of thing. That's just a, this is a whole different ballgame. This is, as the American crest call it, this is the big league. So one of the pilots of the lead plane on this Ruan mission, Paul W. Tibbetts, he's something of a poster boy for the US Air Force. 
Yeah, he is, because Tibbetts, as most people know, will go on to fly the Enola Gay and drop the first atom bomb. So he's got a remarkable record. I mean, if you track back to all of these prominent people at the start of the US Army Air Force experience here in Europe, we've mentioned Ica, we've mentioned Spatz, we've mentioned Doolittle. These, these are the high rankers, but also Castle, Armstrong, people like that who come across. They come across as captains. And if you're going to grow an Air Force up to 60 groups in strength, You've got to find the experience from somewhere. So people are going to be pulled through and promoted very quickly. And um, Paul Tibbetts, he comes across. He's on that first raid. He's flying a, a Boston bomber. And he's been one of these pioneering pilots back in, in the States. So they're called Eka's amateurs because he also commissioned a lot of civilians who are experts in logistics and administration and all this. But, you know, America comes into the war late, as we know. But it's not unexpected. You know, even 1942, they've got about uh, 245,000 personnel across the Air Forces, 23,000 aircraft in existence. They're not all good aircraft. And it's interesting, when you get to the end of the war, they've got 2.4 million personnel and 24,000 aircraft. So the number of aircraft hasn't changed much. The quality has changed. And that expansion in numbers is logistics, technicians, backup, planning, etc. So if you're someone like Tibbetts, and you start the war as a captain, you're going to get promoted. If you're, if you're good at what you do and you, and you survive, you're going to get promoted. Eisenhower is a great example himself, and he starts the war as a colonel, finishes as a five-star general. So if you're going to grow and expand that quickly, anyone who's competent, anyone who can do what they're supposed to do and do it thoroughly and properly is going to get promoted. And there's something of symmetry then about Grafton Underwood. We saw earlier on from the war memorial that the first and the last bombs mm. dropped by the 8th Air Force were dropped by planes that flew from here. Yeah. And then you've got the whole American involvement in the air war is, is bookended by Paul Tibbetts, who pilots the yeah. plane that drops the first bombs on that Ruan mission. But also right at the end of the war, yeah. he pilots the plane that drops the atom bomb and on he, and Hiroshima. And because of Hiroshima, he's singled out for that. But there are other people who do the whole i hate to use the word journey but survive the whole war you know the whole all those years of combat and, and people who do their complete number of missions and volunteer for more and come back you know and, or or transfer to fighters or, or whatever and, and you know let's not forget that there are so many bomb groups they start off with a target of 60 groups of 35 of them will be heavy bomb groups but there's going to be 16 american air forces across the world not one, not two, but 16 different air forces across the world. It's a massive expansion. A massive expansion. And, and as Paul Tibbetts said in his autobiography, in the 995 days of air war against Germany that followed, the 8th Air Force would drop almost four and a half million bombs on Europe, plus more than 25 million incendiaries. It came at a huge cost, though. The 8th would lose more than 40,000 bomber crewmen killed or missing and an additional almost 2,000 very seriously wounded. What we're going to do in this series, Mike, is look at was it worth it? How did it work? What was the cost? What was the benefit? And the stories of the people involved. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that because, you know, it, it's a significant contribution to the outcome of the war. And it's a remarkable story. And it doesn't take anything away from the other aspects of the war. Everyone played their part. But it, the, the 8th Air Force is just a fascinating story. A fascinating story, Mike. Indeed, Many, many fascinating stories. Look, it's been an absolutely amazing visit to Grafton Underwood, visiting the exact same place where it all started on August 17th, 1942. But for now, that's about it for this episode of the Mighty Eighth Podcast. Before we go, though, please do subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please, if you can, 
leave us a five-star review. It'll make the Mighty Eighth podcast easier for other people to find and it'll help us reach more listeners. We've got lots more episodes in the pipeline, lots more fascinating and remarkable stories about the Mighty Eighth. But for now, for military historian Mike Peters and me, Johan Tasker, thank you for listening and do please join us again next time as we continue to discover the people, the planes and the places of the United States 8th Army Air Force.